Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And we are gathered here today with the company of Christ Confessing Concordians, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, Pastor Peter Hill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith, as your host today. And we are going to continue to work our way through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Last week, we dug into baptism, but due to the tyrant, Jonathan Fisk, operating the uh, soundboard what? and kept like what? cutting me off and derailing me, me? we were unable to what? talk about all of the things that we needed to talk about in baptism. I thought we might make show history and cover one article in one day, but it just didn't work. Hmm. So we're going to pick up again with Article 9 on baptism today. We're going to talk about uh, a few more things in there. And maybe just depending, although it's baptism. And yeah. as we said last yeah, week, there's there's really nothing more Lutheran than baptism. And we could all talk about this for ages. And so uh, we'll see how it goes. But maybe we'll push into Article 10 on the Holy Supper, which is, of course, great sacrament as well and, and, and of great comfort to us. So welcome to the show. Anyway, I'll let you guys talk here for a second. I'm going to just put it out here right now that I'm pretty sure we'll start next week with Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. This week we'll do baptism, and that's okay. Yeah, we were just talking uh, before the show started here how, you know, e- even just in general, like, everyday conversation with whoa, Pastor whoa, Hill. Whoa, I see where this is going. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> just everyday conversation with Pastor Hill can can really take most of your day. Uh, it's a good thing. We we love talking to Pastor Hill. Ideally, it's a lot of fun, but, yeah, yeah you're right. But uh, I, I so, so imagine on theology. Pastor yeah. Hill, I would say that there. Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. That didn't make sense. Yeah, oh, yeah. to the heart. Oh, yeah. to the heart. To the yeah. heart. Uh, I do have a question, though, about Article 9, as mm-hmm. uh, about baptism as we get going. Uh, because as we talk with the other confessional writings, uh, say Luther's small catechism or Luther's large catechism or the Augsburg Confession, uh, as they, and the small call articles, too, as they address baptism, they do it in a really kind of all-encompassing way. This this article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession is really nuanced, and it's very directly speaking. It doesn't really speak a whole lot to the Roman Catholic opponents, because the Roman Catholics say at this point, we're not opponents. We don't oppose your your statement on baptism. And so there is really just... Uh, a really short and pretty simple argument towards why we baptize infants and and kind of why the the anabaptistic anabaptistic understanding of baptism is is flawed but it's not a broad overview this is a uh, this is kind of a just a few feet wide and and a fairly deep dig uh instead of other places we see kind of a, a wide and deep uh, push into baptism 
I don't know if anybody else wanted to think about that or point that out. I, I actually was thinking about this a good bit over the weekend, and I began thinking about it last week as, as we really did talk about on the show how, yeah, it says that we agree uh, with the Roman teaching on baptism. Uh, they affirmed it in the confutation. But yet the, it's very clear, very obvious that we don't agree. And I kind of had the same reaction, and, and especially as I continued to think about it for the week, I thought, why why is this nuanced and kind of written the way it is? So I did some looking uh, academic that I am, or at least aspiring academic that I desire to be. Somebody I, who loves homework. I did. I, I dug in, did my homework. And, and it's actually interesting that if you take a look into it, um, Eck, one of the Roman theologians uh, who was writing, uh, had had uh, a writing 404 articles of which he had written, and actually he he states pretty pretty boldly in there uh, that he labels speaking of faith in connection with baptism as heretical, and that is very much. I mean, he he makes that point in his 404 articles, and. That is very much the position of the Lutherans. And so, again, as I, I said last week, it says we agree, but we really don't. And and the, the things that I was finding is because of the purpose of the Augsburg Confession, of just stating our belief on things, Melanchthon kind of nuances this more than the other confessional documents do, simply because the charge at the time was that Anabaptists had arisen among Lutherans. And so it's kind of almost like uh, it it was put in one uh, uh, book that I was reading on this. Um, It it says that the Lutherans kind of got tunnel vision in just making sure that they knew that we were not Anabaptists in this. Um, and, and as we kind of talked about, and we'll probably talk about this show, I think that the Anabaptists make similar errors that the Roman theologians do. I mean, when we talk about one, we can really talk about the other, and it manifests itself in different ways, um, namely not baptizing infants and so forth, and we'll talk more about that. But it, but it is interesting that, that here the Lutherans kind of get that tunnel vision, and they just want to assert, we're not Anabaptists, we're not doing that. No, no one has arisen among us that is is holding to their teachings. And so even though that that becomes the focus of the Augsburg Confession on what baptism is, um, here, though they say they agree, they just want to reaffirm that again. They're so worried about that. Now, why that is, I did not find anything in my research that kind of led to why they they were so worried about that. I think what's important to, to point out, though, and Peter did this initially here, is how as a result of that, that tunnel vision that you mentioned, and it's not just the tunnel vision as well, but even the way that the Augsburg Confession itself is really aimed at a certain thing. It's trying to achieve a certain thing with the theology. It's not attempting to be a complete dogmatic treatise on everything that it talks about. The Apology is not doing that either. The The large catechism isn't doing that. It's, it's, it is attempting to be a complete dogmatic treatise for fathers to teach their children, right? But uh, The basics, but it really doesn't cover everything. And so to understand that maybe opens up... Uh, when you when you read the book of concord to recognize it all these pieces get taken together scripture is the same way you know it's not like everything we know about jesus being god is in colossians 2 like there's other stuff from other places and and so you got to let the confessions interpret the confessions you got to let scripture interpret scripture and just apply that as you dig into this book which otherwise can be a pretty daunting thing and you can be like well why are they only talking about this well cuz there is some other event or thing that's driving them i do got to mention i love 
John Eck it, because the guy is just he's such a a classic figure this this guy who wrote these 404 theses against Luther most of which are like you know he believes in dragons and unicorns I mean it's not quite like that but it's kind of like <laughs> a, a really just nonsensical stuff that he says and he's like the the original enlightenments or late medieval rage hate Facebook post guy where he's like he just writes and it's all one paragraph and it's three pages of scrolling right except he's got bullet points right so I'm gonna make all these reasons to hate Martin Luther. One, two, three, four. And he gets to 404. He's like, 404. Yeah, that's enough. I'll stop at 404. <laughs> that that should do it. <laughs> what? what? How do you get to this point? But uh, if you ever want to read those, uh, you can find those out there. They are pretty much nonsense, uh, com- and as is the confutation. But I just find him this comical figure, even though he was it was a real deal. I mean, they had to deal with this. He was popular. Uh, the, the Roman... Uh, laity were listening to him and so it was believed by many that you know that we were eating our babies and and you know sacrificing goats to the gods of trees or whatever it wasn't like that was what he was saying but he was making up these stories and people believed it and so they did get tunnel vision no we're not anabaptists no we have not rejected civil order no we have not done this and that and the other thing and martin luther uh, is pretty well known for being a polemical and for for uh that's the polite way of saying he didn't always play fair in his written work against somebody else and some of his uh, most direct and and some of his most crude invectives were against dr eck mm. uh and mm. so uh their written correspondence is actually known as being some of the harshest uh even in a polemical age like the 16th century was uh they they traded barbs uh, mm-hmm. pretty clearly and pretty directly, uh, and it it wasn't friendly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you were to transplant transplant it into our modern society, I mean, it might be like a Twitter battle back and forth mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. And, yeah, you know, uh, throwing things and. Unfortunately, we tend to do these things with politics, uh, which maybe speaks to our God, uh, false idol of politics, uh, where we see this play out in our contemporary society more than uh, issues of religion and things like that. But I, I think it still happens. Even the, the big difference back then, at least, would have been with a little more than 160 characters, that they were attempting <laughs> to argue real points. Definitely. Yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> As opposed to, it's pretty difficult to have any kind of real discussion on, on but there's Twitter. But there's a still a point where. I, I wonder if some people observing the debate, and maybe even some of the debaters themselves, saw this more as a political distinction oh, and a sure. political battle than they recognized it as a religious one. While they were making theological points back and forth, I still think they may have been more motivated by politics, uh, not in terms of a, of a democratic kind of an authority, but who has more authority between temporal rulers like, say, the elector of Saxony, Frederick, and uh, the R- Roman papacy. Hmm. Uh, and I think I think there is a, a strong political bent there, too. Uh, before we say it was a it was a purer age when they they argued theology for theology's sake i that might be well a i bit think rosy. If, I'm, if i'm not mistaken the the real target of x theses was was the emperor and he was attempting to convince the emperor to go get the lutherans go 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 knock them out because look how bad they are for society and so yeah there's definitely that political and, and then you're where are we or in the augsburg confession where we're trying to convince the emperor no no we're on your side we're all good and now we're defending ourselves against the accusations of the roman legates that have come to to deal with uh, the emperor so it all is really tied together in that um in that then so the big you mentioned this pastor smith the big kind of oomph here along with baptism being necessary for salvation which we mentioned is the natural result of that truth. 
which is that if we want children to be saved, children are to be baptized. And baptism of children is not in vain, but is necessary and effective for salvation. And while it may not be the most important thing for us to say to good old Lutherans, you've got to baptize your babies. You know, No one's really forgotten that yet, although sometimes they decide to wait a while, I suppose. Uh, it, and it may not be exactly what the Romans uh, need to be convinced that we do. It's, it's kind of like I, we're saying this on radio, going out into American Christianity, and I'm pretty sure somebody's listening and listened in today and said, oh, they're talking about Jesus, this is good, and then they hear us say this, baptism of children is not in vain, and they go, what? What are you talking about? Children to be baptized, that's that's blasphemy. How can you how can you make that decision for a child? That kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and and it it really boils down to again, what is it that you say baptism is? Mm. And and I guess, you know, when when we write that baptism is necessary for salvation, um, you know, while we're maybe, you know, as I said, look, looking into some books that I did this past week, um, maybe kind of nuancing our own argument and not taking head on that ac- accusation of the connection with faith. But for us, we recognize that it is a means of grace from God to us in which he works faith and salvation, right? And so where we where we see that, of course, it's necessary. We need that gift. Um the Anabaptists, and and I and we talked last show as well, where you know, in effect, and what they do uh, with baptism, the uh, the Roman theologians definitely fall off on this as well. Uh, but for the Anabaptists, um, it becomes a uh, com- their common phrase would be the confession of faith, right? You know that you are making this confession of your faith by baptism. Uh, what what's the phrase that they commonly use with this? Um, are you thinking? Of, I, I'm not sure what you're getting, at, but yeah. they've used the, the language of the ordinance, so right. submission to ordinances. Yeah. Now, I don't know if the Anabaptists did that, but t- today's rebaptizers see it as a command from Jesus that is to be obeyed to show forth how much you believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the ordinance connection, but I, it just popped into my mind. It's that uh, outward sign of an inward right. reality or right. something like right. that right. Uh, that they talk about, and uh, and so for them, when it's a, an act of a public confession. Uh, of course, it's going to lead you to a different conclusion because, well, in that sense, it's quite silly to baptize a baby because a baby can't make any confession of faith. Um, and they have a misunderstanding of what faith is. And so, yeah, we kind of have this uh, this situation of, you know, disagreement on this simply because we disagree of what baptism does. And and you talked earlier about, uh, you know, that the uh, confessions inter- interpret the confessions like scripture interprets scripture, but certainly scripture has to interpret our confessions. I mean, this is Absolutely. based on, and we're all in agreement on that. And I think this is where uh, we still don't have agreement. Um, and, and as you said, well, with a broad American Christianity, we still don't have agreement on what scripture says about baptism. And for us as Lutherans, it's it's kind of maddening because it's like, how how are you reading the same words as we are and arriving at this very different conclusion about the nature of faith, how God Man. works? And you're you're really hitting something there in that it, sh- it it betrays that the reason we disagree about baptism is because we disagree about what faith is, and the reason we disagree about what faith is is because we disagree about what the object of faith. is is so that the arguments against infant baptism are almost never drawn from the text of holy scripture infants can't have faith that's the argument 
not from a text of scripture. From an absence of a text in scripture, sure, that's not really an argument. But so, so the, the disagreement though is so much deeper than just what do we believe about this water? It actually impacts everything all the way down to where do we found what we believe on? What is the strength of the word of God? The thing that really convinced me on baptism. Sadly, I was at seminary by the time I, I was contemplating this this reality. I shouldn't have gotten that far. But uh, the thing that really convinced me was going and looking at all the verses that talk about baptism and trying to develop my theology of baptism exclusively from that without any of the other arguments about what infants can or cannot do, right? And not trying to import what Paul calls them plausible arguments, things that make sense. It makes sense. Look at the baby. What can he do? Uh, not letting those be the establishment. And if you do that, it's just crazy. Like you said, how are we even reading the same Bible? Well, in a certain sense, we're not because we're not reading it the same same way or with the same expectations of it. You got anything to throw in? It's been a little bit from, I mean, we, we, we talked about Peter Eel talking and then, and then he just hasn't. So yeah, you made fun of me. You almost hurt it. my Aww. feelings. Not really. Uh, but uh, we, I don't have a whole lot to add here except uh, to fast forward the conversation a little bit. In the 16th century, the Lutherans were really afraid of being being lumped in that they were the same thing as the Anabaptists. Now, in you know 2018, we sit here and we think uh, that a lot of times Lutherans get lumped in with with general Protestants, and this is where. Uh, you know, people will say, well, well, there's Catholics, Roman Catholics, and there's Protestants, and Lutherans are another kind of Protestant. But it's really in terms of baptism and what we believe, teach, and confess about baptism, where we say we're not like other Protestant bodies. We believe, teach, and confess something really different about baptism. This is a place where God comes to us. This is not about our show of faith. This is not about our commitment to God. This is not about uh, simply an external participation in a religious community or the people of God, but this is about God coming to us and grafting us into his community where Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. And so we aren't general protestants in that term because of what we believe about baptism yeah, i i also in, in connection with that idea i wonder your guys thoughts on this one of the things i was reading this past week as i was continuing to think about these things kind of jarred me a little bit i i guess in a lot of these things when it comes to baptism lord's supper is definitely where we see it most prevalently as well too but in a lot of these things i i've always kind of thought that Lutherans kind of represent that midpoint. It's like, we're not with you Catholics, we're with you to a point, but then you go astray, and we're not with you general everybody else Protestants. Uh, and I kind of always thought that we represent this midpoint, and specifically when it comes to baptism here. Uh, and we've talked about this with previous issues as well, especially the nature of faith itself. But that Catholic view of, you know, that ex opere operato, you know, in the doing of the work, you know, that it has effectiveness. And, and we disagree with the Catholics on that. And we disagree with the Roman theologians, rather, I should say. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we disagree with that. But then we certainly uh, disagree with the Anabaptists who who make the this confession of faith and so forth. But I thought that this book was kind of jarring a little bit. And it said, you know, but to think that Lutherans represent the midpoint is not true. And hmm. where he went with that was, you know, the, the goal should never be to be the midpoint the goal should be what is orthodox. Hmm. What does scripture teach us? And and I thought, huh, I, I guess, you know, 
even as much as I wholeheartedly agree with that and talk that way myself, I had never really considered, you know, with my own ideas of Lutherans represent this midway between Roman Catholicism and and American evangelicalism or the rest of Protestants, whatever we want to call it, uh, and so forth, um, that, that that's really not where we want to be. We don't want to be the midpoint. We just want to be orthodox. And I don't know, what are your guys' thoughts on that? It, it calls to mind that there is uh, another Protestant body, uh, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, who really celebrate the middle way. And they talk a lot about seeking that middle way between uh, the, the the Protestants on one hand, um, and, and especially certain camps of Protestants, and the Roman Catholics on the other. And they're always seeking out that middle way uh, and, and moving through the middle. And so as you started talking about the middle way, I thought, oh, that sounds like, like this particular group of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and I really like the distinction. Our call is to be faithful, to be orthodox, to confess what Scripture confesses. Where the chips fall in relationship to any other group of Christians or church body is not really what we're after. Uh, reminds me about uh, Peter and John and Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Jesus and uh, Peter are walking along the beach, and uh, Peter turns around and he recognizes John behind him. And he says to Jesus, what about him? And Jesus says, uh, I call you to be faithful and I call you to feed my sheep. Uh, what will happen to him is, as a paraphrased form, is is my business and his business, but not your business. Our relationship uh, with Christ and with faithfulness to his church isn't dependent on any other church body. It's our job to read scripture, to confess scripture, and to live the Christian life that we've been given to live. And uh, to do that as individuals and to do that corporately as a body. I think seeking to have sort of a middle, I think that that is the it's the wrong approach. And maybe that's really the point that, that was being made by the writer you mentioned, Pastor Smith, that it's almost as if it's a virtue to not be extreme. And so what I'll do is find the gray area and that's where I'll plant my flag because then I can feel like kind of I'm in a safe place. What's, what's making me think about this is I've heard people tell me in the Missouri Synod that, you know, they used to be either this or that other Lutheran kind. And there's there's and, and in this way of talking, there's one that's on the left and there's one that's on the right of the Missouri Synod. And they decided to not go left or right, but to come into the middle. And they see the Missouri Synod as being that middle ground somewhere. As if, again, uh, one of these other orthodox, largely orthodox Lutheran bodies in America is somehow more conservative than us, and we're not. And I'm now thrown off. I'm talking to like a wall because you guys are looking at pieces of paper. What's going on? So, so what, my, my concern here is that we like we lump in whole church bodies as left, right, and then there's a middle when there is no left or right in Scripture. There is the Scriptures. There is what we are to believe, teach, and confess. There is what we are uh, having delivered to us by Scripture itself. So, Yeah, and I, I think all three of us are saying the same thing just in slightly different ways. Yeah, uh, but all in agreement and in concord, since we like that word here. Yeah, because we're the company of Christ confessing concordians. Concordians, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. But uh, to, 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 Accordians. to talk about the piece of paper that you said they were looking at. So we just had delivered to us in this high tech world a printout 
of an email. And I just kind of, you know, it's kind of jarring. I, I'm trying to read through this. There's a question in here, but maybe we're going to have to get to this after the break so that I have actually time to read this and, and not be distracted from talking on the radio. Unless you two gentlemen want to just, you know, talk away for a little while while I work. It's, it's kind of a lengthy email, but it looks like it might be a good question. So might have to wait till after the break on that. We'll see you after that break in just a few minutes. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah... We'll learn about why the seasons of the church year matter to us, and we'll meet the new LCMS National Youth Gathering Program Director. Can improv theater help college students prepare for future careers? How does church work continuing education benefit you in the pew? The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Every day, things happen that affect the lives of Lutherans worldwide. Whether it's mercy efforts to a disaster-stricken community, threats to religious liberty, or cultural trends. World Lutheran News Digest takes an in-depth look at one issue each week as I interview newsmakers and experts. While Sarah Golseth presents a quick look at the week's news. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. The music of George Friedrich Handel's Zadok the Priest has been used for every British coronation since 1727. Handel's text, inspired by 1 Kings 1, 38 through 50, describes the anointing of Solomon as king. On February 6, 1952, Queen Elizabeth II became queen. June 2nd will be the 66th anniversary of her coronation as the longest reigning sovereign in British history. In her speeches over the years, especially her annual televised Christmas message, she references Bible stories and passages from the epistles of Paul, the prophecies of Isaiah, and the Gospels. In her 2015 Christmas message, Queen Elizabeth quoted from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John contains a verse of great hope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.
And welcome back to Concord Matters with our company of Christ-confessing Concordians, Pastor Jonathan Piss, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself as host, Pastor Sean Smith. And sorry for that awkward going to break. We received a printout of an email, and we wanted to read it, and then... This just in. That tyrant, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Piss, just away in the actually was quite helpful in just sending us to break so that I had time to read through it. Um, but uh, I'm going to boil it down to... There, there seems like there's a couple questions in this email here, um, but... I, I think one that that is worthy of real discussion here on the basis of Scripture and our confession here in Article 9 on baptism and the formula of Concord. Um, not formula of Concord. Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I don't even know what I'm teaching in the Book of Concord anymore, but that's what we're talking about. But this question is asked, isn't baptizing infants proving we are justified by grace through Christ. And I'm going to go ahead and throw that to Pastor Peter Ill to uh, address first. Sure. First, I, I want to be a little bit nitpicky with the question. Uh, and and do I want to say that baptism isn't proving anything. Uh, we don't baptize to show or to illustrate. And the primary purpose of baptism is not to confess, but rather uh, it, is bap- it is a... Uh, Baptism is a place where we see that we are forgiven of our sins. And so we go ahead and we baptize children to say the same thing that Scripture says. It's not up to us to prove it because God's Word is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant. And when uh, when Peter says this gift is uh, this promise, that is the promise of grace through faith, and that comes through baptism, as he's saying in Acts chapter 2, this promise is for you and your children, uh, we take that for just what it is. It is a promise from God that is for all people, and uh, that doesn't rule children out. And so our baptism isn't us making a point or making a confession or making a statement. Our baptism is God making a statement about us, and that's what we receive. When it comes to baptism, Christians aren't doers. Christians are receivers. We receive baptism. We get baptism. We are baptized. It's not about something that I am doing for God. It's not something that I'm doing for the church. It's not something that I'm doing for myself because we are baptized into the church by Christ through the means of water and the word of God. And so... Did somebody else jump? I, I was going to jump in because oh, you're stirring thoughts in my head now, and, and it certainly connects. That's hard with, to do with him. Oh, thank you. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it is, you know, it's drawing to mind, of course, other scripture, you know, where we talk about faith like that of a little child and so forth. And and, and this is very central to our confession of what baptism is. is and I like the way that you put that, that, you know, in baptism, we're not doers, we're receivers. And that is very much like the faith of a little child. And when we connect that, you know, as Lutherans always do, that the the issue of baptism is connected with faith, which receives, then we begin to understand what this really is doing in us. And, and for me, it kind of draws a metaphor of, um, you know, Pastor Fisk, you have children here, uh, only Indeed. one in the studio that has any at least of yet. And, mm. uh, and so we, uh, you know, we know when it comes to children, right? That you love them, you provide security for them, a house for them to live in, things like that nature, right? Is it incumbent upon them to be able to rationalize that? Mm. No, not yeah. at all. Yeah, so so what what is it that, you know, motivates you to provide that for them then? Yeah, love. Love. 
Yeah. And so they just simply receive that. Mm-hmm. And they'll certainly grow up into it and come to appreciate it. I sometimes even think myself, you know, more and more. And, and, and if they're listening, I love you, mom and dad. <laughs> but uh, I am realizing more and more of all that I received from my parents mm. and, and all the security that they provided for me and all of the love that they showed me and all of the, you know, the, the, the food that I had on my table every day and, and all of the things that they were able to provide out of that love for me as their child. And I received that. It wasn't a coming upon me to realize that. And unfortunately, some people go through life and never realize all that they actually receive and love from their parents um, and never really give thanks of that. Um, but, you know, hopefully the the goal would be that you would come to that realization and that you would grow up into it. But it's not contingent upon it when you recognize that it is received out of love from the one who gives. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that. You got me thinking a little bit about how one of the problems with sinful children, which we all have and all, all are or were, is that when you give them those good gifts every day, it becomes an assumption that they have, an expectation that is is so firmly rooted that, you know, you, I will think of one or all of my children at various times in their lives, while food is being served at the table, saying, I want some when the plate is still three plates away from them, right? They're, they're, they've become so expectant of the gift being given that their faith, their trust that they're going to get it is actually jumping forward and grabbing a hold of it in a very obnoxious and, and kind of selfish way. But would that, our trust in what God has said of us, would be so assumed, would be so strongly uh, contained uh, within a moment. I don't know if that makes sense or not, uh, but it, it, there's something very wonderful about that childlike assumption that the things the parents give, the parents are going to keep giving no matter what. It's just always going to be there. There are families, of course, where broken homes you know, make that not happen, but the image that's there is, is, is pretty powerful. And, and like you said, it doesn't require a, a cognizant rational reasoned assumption you know my 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 four-year-old doesn't trust that there's going to be food tonight because she sat down and wrote out a thesis about how i go to work and make money and buy food with it she just sees it happen every day and, and believes it to be so so in this way baptism very much is part of uh, the way god does this to us right? it's, it's the birthing of that faith whereas we're going to talk about the lord's supper next time uh the lord's supper is the feeding of that faith so i i don't know you're looking like a, you're a little confused like i maybe oh no no said it wrong so no, i'm trying to figure out uh how much i get to say next okay uh because there's a couple of really good pertinent scripture passages here hmm. uh, the first one that i was thinking of was Jesus teaching about prayer as he was giving his disciples the Lord's Prayer, he he said, how many of you, if a father, uh, if a child were to ask their father for a fish, hmm. would instead give him a serpent or a scorpion uh, instead of an egg? Uh, if your heavenly, if your earthly fathers who are imperfect give you good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give you a good gift? Hmm. This is, of course, right after Jesus teaches us to pray, our father. And we are truly spiritual children who come before our merciful and gracious heavenly father, like children before their father, as receivers, as getters. Scripture doesn't paint members of the church, Christians, as being people who are there as doers, but rather as receivers, as getters. And so that's what we get to do. And that parallels the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He says, uh, Lord, 
we know who we we know you because of the works that you're doing and jesus starts to talk with him about being born again and it seems like nicodemus just like smacks himself in the forehead and says what what's all this talk about being born again how can a man be born again when he's old can he crawl back inside his mother's womb uh every time i read this with my confirmation students uh mom and dad come with their students at at the church i get to serve and so uh, as they come every time i read this i watch the moms wince they're all about not having that happen um and jesus talks about born again not by blood, but by water and the word, by the spirit of God that you see working, that you can hear moving, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. It just, it does what God says it will do, and it comes among us, and it does his great works, and we are reborn as children. This promise isn't about what anybody can do. It's not up to the teacher Nicodemus. It's not up to uh, the work of a Christian and that's where the the Anabaptist or the rebaptizer argument really kind of comes off the rails because it's an argument that is based entirely on reason and logic. Uh, and, and it starts something like this. Well, it makes sense that this faith needs to be the person's own. Uh, this person needs to commit to something. How can you make a decision or indicate that you have sh- uh, that this is the way that you're ready to live if you do these things, uh, or unless you do these things? And and so you need to make baptism your own, and it needs to be your own statement. And already that logic and that reason have gotten out of talking as a receiver into talking like a doer, and and. With good intentions, we've gotten away from speaking the same way that Scripture speaks. Yeah, my, my question is always, again, when you hear the argument against infant baptism, whichever one it is that gets brought up, the first thing in your mind needs to be, where is this written? And unequivocally, the arguments that are brought forth by the rebaptizers will not be written in Scripture. They will have assumed something as just being true. You know, uh, God would never give us anything unreasonable to believe. I believe that's actually said by uh, by Calvin or, or Wesley. One of the guys says it. Uh, they, they just assume that that's true. But see, this is not this is not the wisdom of Christ we've been taught in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us to believe that. And if you're going to say I'm a Scripture-alone Christian, then you got to start with what the Scriptures say. you got to have those be your assumptions and only question what Scripture does say when the Scriptures itself tell you there must be another way to understand it. So when Scripture comes along and says baptism buries and raises you in Christ, when it comes along along and it says be repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit when it comes along and it says baptism now saves you don't say this can't be that's not written in scripture say is there a scripture passage that tells me i have to understand these things differently than they read the way a child would read them and the end of the end of the matter is there's not there, there's nothing to teach you such a thing so that we can we can trust what scripture does say about baptism to be true which is why we baptize infants, not to prove that it's true, but because it is true. Because it is true that baptism is God's necessary means of saving you, we're going to give it to everybody that's there, right? And the nice thing about the infant, I, I think the heart of the question, you know, doesn't this prove it's by grace alone? Well, see, that's, that's the nice thing of the infant. It doesn't prove that it's by grace alone, but it does illustrate how it is indeed by grace alone, that this this child who can do nothing, either good or evil, just like Jacob and Esau, is being carried by faithful believing parents who are holy because of their faith, 
through whom, because of their proximity to the child, the child is now holy, and they're doing the faithful thing, asking God to give the promise which they have received to this child, because our Lord has said to do so, to baptize all nations, right? And they're just, they're just doing what Jesus says, in trust and in faith. What a glorious thing. It's like a dead man being raised from the dead. Yeah, glorious thing, baptism. Yeah, I- I think when in the break when I was reading through this and I read that question, I think all three of us almost simultaneously said it doesn't prove, but it does confess. And Mm. and when we talk about the meaning of that word confession, it's the same say it's to speak what God speaks to us in his word, which is true. And uh, and so when when we see this, I, I like what you brought in there that really all of scripture talks about this in so many different places about how the whole nature of this thing is as receivers. I love what you brought in with the the Lord's prayer there, just the way that we pray. I'm going to take it even a little further too, in the way that we talk about it in the small catechism. I love what Luther does with the, with the explanation of each petition in the, in of the Lord's prayer in the small catechism. This is the way it is anyway, but we're praying that it may be this way among us. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just a beautiful way of recognizing how we receive this good thing, these good things from our Heavenly Father who loves and cares for us. And when we recognize this, this really truly does become a means of grace, which is exactly the way we talk about baptism. It is a means of grace. We receive grace from our Heavenly Father who loves and cares for us. And it's a really comforting message then when it's a means of grace, because it's not dependent upon my works. It's not dependent upon, you know, how, how often I failed and tried to do better or anything of that nature. Uh, I mean, I'm not condemned from it from the number of times I fail. That grace is always there, always strengthening me in the baptized life that he has delivered salvation to me. It's kind of like when, when the baby's born in the hospital and the doctor comes along with the, the birth certificate and they're saying, can you name the kid? And then you got to sign her name and be like, well, no, I can't name him. He's got to make that decision for himself, right? God comes along in baptism and he names you. He names you his. He claims you as his own. And to reject that reality is obstinate, frankly. It's just obstinate. It's refusing. And this is where, again, the question is kind of right. It is actually refusing to believe in grace. And it is placing at the, at the moment of grace a command, an ordinance, a law for me to point back to myself with. And that's where there's, there's great jeopardy in the matter, uh, that where we would steal from all nations, men, women, children, all people, uh, the promise that you can't bring anything to Jesus. That unless you, he washes you, you have no part with him. Right, it's refusing that and putting there uh, a final obstacle of my own heart, which is actually the worst one of all. Which is where we were talking. It's kind of where we started. You know, the difference between the Roman position and the evangelical, say, Anabaptist position on baptism isn't as big as you would think. Although the Romans are still baptizing babies, uh, that their their view of justification, uh, Article Four, uh, is is still pretty much at play here as we as we deal with what the scriptures say about it. Yeah, as we yeah. talked about that last week, they they nuance that away, and it becomes this you know doing of penance in, in, in order to live as you're of the household of faith. Faith, whereas the Anabaptists are kind of on the other side saying the same things, but they're coming at it with uh, you know, well, we're going to let them make their own decision for it when they're old enough to rationalize it. I mean, it, it's just kind of nonsensical when you consider again. I think the image of a child and a parent is helpful. What other things in life? 
present culture, which is a little silly and stupid, and we all recognize this aside, uh, what other things in life would we would we let our children make their own decision for? Right. Uh, I, you, you brought up, you know, that he puts his name on you. Mm-hmm. Right. I actually saw this play out uh, with someone I know once when, uh, you know, they changed their name at one point and it offended the family. You know, uh, they were changing their last name and so forth. And, and it's like, that was the name I gave you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they think it's a little silly, you know, that their parents would be so upset but it really is. It's it's an offensive thing. It's like, you know, I gave this out of love for you. I, I put time and thought into it. And, and and while that is a small thing in comparison to the faith that we receive from God, it, it does make an image of it. Or to take it, you know, to something a little more serious, who of us would let our children, you know, decide, you know, whether or not they want to eat mm-hmm. before they can rationally understand that they need to eat right. or, you know, to the other side that maybe the more Roman Catholic side of that to, to work that into the metaphor is, Oh, well, because you're in my household, I make it possible for you to eat, but you have to decide to do that of your own. No, that's not how it works. Here is food. You need to eat. I am feeding you. And, and, and the, the response is to receive that and say, ah, this is good. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. My parents sent me to school, usually, uh, especially when I was little, over my own tears and cries and yells. Uh, this is probably a good point in case they're listening. Mom and dad, I'm still sorry. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really glad I did go to school. And they made sure I went because they knew it was good for me. And I received it, not always happily. How often do we receive from our Heavenly Father uh, and say... I'm not sure that I like the way that the Bible talks about baptism. It talks about me like I'm dead in my sin. It talks about me like I'm a, I can be an insolent, petulant child who needs to be brought places and who needs to have things done for me because I can't do them for myself. And it seems really unempowering. And I don't like that. And I want scripture to treat me like a grown up. Uh, I think that way a lot. But still, God comes to us because he's, declares that it's true. We are dead in our sins. We are children of faith, and we are people who need to be brought places. We need to be brought first to the baptismal font, to be brought into the family um, and into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From there, we are brought eventually to the altar where we receive the body and blood of Jesus. We are brought again and again to hear the word of God in preaching, in scripture reading, in absolution, until we are brought to church here on earth for the last time, and then we are placed in a grave until Christ comes again. And then he brings us into the resurrection, or he will. Um, and I'm looking forward to that day, too, when we continue to be brought places by God. Throughout all of that, that bringing, right, to the, from, from baptism to confirmation to regular church attendance to the supper to the day before you die, if you think you've surpassed the infant in faith, you are missing the entire point. The entire way, you are still the infant, the petulant infant, kicking and screaming, not understanding what's going on. There is an awakening of faith that is indeed taking place where there is a trust in the Father to provide as well. But you bring nothing more to the table than you did as the flesh of Adam originally did at the at that first burial in the water and the word. I do got to say, I, I, it's been a while since we talked about the angelic Pastor Peter Ill. But now we have some new uh, monikers for you. Pastor Ill, the insolent. 
Pastor Ill, the petulant, out of his own mouth, my friends, out of his own mouth. He has thus named himself. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we don't name ourselves. (laughs) Uh, But uh, as as you were talking there, it it reminded me of the the great rite for baptism that we have in our Lutheran tradition. And as I always, I, I do pre-baptismal meetings with my parents and kind of go through things and encourage them and godly, you know, cause we do need to raise our children in, to live in accordance with the baptized calling that they have received and train them in virtue and godliness and all things needful for life. Right. Um, but uh, it, it really does. It, it is central to the nature of our life as believers in Christ, what we receive there in baptism. And whenever I teach in those pre-baptismal meetings, um, the the rite of holy baptism, I open up the, the hymnal and say, this is what we're going to do. And so that you're not thrown off on that Sunday morning when we do it, you know, uh, when that baby is born, hopefully it's that next Sunday. I always encourage that right then and there. Um, but, uh, you know, I say, you know, as, as with any ritual that you do, you want to know why you're doing this. Hmm. And I love that the rite of baptism, as we have it in the Lutheran service book, gives a great explanation of this right at the beginning. And I always point that out. And I want to read a portion of that. First, it, it quotes from uh, um, uh, Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and First Peter 3, those scripture readings of, and, and, and our rites always begin, you know, with, as with the marriage uh, right, as also the baptism right, dearly beloved, you know, it's like, this is what we're here for. These are words to say, this is what we're gathered here for, right? Uh, but then the second paragraph of this right, I, I do want to read this. The word of God also teaches that we are all conceived and born sinful and are under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. All right. So right there, we've identified the problem. We are conceived so even before the baby gets out of that womb, and usually I, I try to talk with the parents while the baby's still in the womb, because again, I want to encourage, this is some serious stuff that's going on. As soon as that baby gets out, we need to take care of this, right? And and, and certainly we can talk about how the baby through the mother is hearing the word of God proclaimed in the womb, and, and that can be a great comfort uh, when this sinful world happens and, and tragedies happen and so forth as well. But that's a tangent. That's another thing that we can talk about. Um, but, uh, you know... Th- from that very moment of conception, it has the sin problem. The child has the sin problem and is under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. And so this is the very place where he claims us as baptism. And and I do the same thing when I work through uh, the baptismal rite. I kind of explain, you know, for 10 minutes on each line. But I'm going to pause here so that Pastor El can jump in. And this is really scandalous. When, when you get to, uh, you know, there's a a young baptismal candidate at church. Uh, they might be wearing a white dress or a white robe or garment, piece of fabric thing. And here they come and they're adorable and they're sleeping with this cute little angelic face. And maybe they have a little cross pacifier. I've seen a couple of those. And and it's time to get baptized. And everybody, you can just kind of hear the collective awe in the congregation. And then pastor gets up Maybe he smiles and he says, this person was conceived and born sinful and is under the power of the devil until Christ claims them as their own. What? What a buzzkill, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Throwing a wet blanket it, all over it this. It absolutely is. Because we want to, and I think we've been informed by our culture, to say, here's a baby. A baby is a blank slate. They can be good. They can be bad. Right now, they're 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 blank. They're neutral. Uh 
that's not the way the Bible talks. It's not how Scripture talks. Scripture says this person is under the devil's power until Jesus grabs this child and washes them clean. And that's what we talk about. And so there's a great joy that is about to come later in this paragraph. But first, we have to kind of sit with the, wow, pastor really is saying a wet blankety kind of a thing because the Bible says a wet blankety kind of thing. Well, and it gets even worse here in a second. The very next line says, and we would be lost forever unless delivered from sin, delivered from sin, death and everlasting condemnation. If I could not stumble over the words, that would be great. But I mean, yeah, it, it kind of reemphasizes this point. This is a really ugly, serious matter going on here. This child you may think is cute. And I agree. Children are cute to some extent. Some right? Of them. Yeah. None of those fist kids, though. <laughs> no. But because uh, they have their father. But, too much. Uh, too much. Uh, but no, on a, on a serious note, I mean, yeah, they, they are cute to some extent, but we need to recognize the ugliness of this situation, too, mm-hmm. that this is an ugly, condemned sinner mm-hmm. to that fires of hell for all eternity unless Christ intercedes and does something yeah. here. Cancer of the soul, yeah. child of the devil, you know, born born with a a wretchedness so deep that the only thought that child ever has as an infant is me me mine mine. They might not be able to reason but they can cry for what they want, right? And they do. And they, and they, Father of how many now? Yeah, yeah. Is it six? Uh, five. Five. I'm five. sorry. That's I, right. I added one already. And but, they uh, do. And yeah. they do. But they. Uh, this is why the loss of the exorcism and the baptismal rite, I think, really takes the, the oomph out of the, the moment that Luther, when he first put together the rite or uh, surmised the rites, you know, pulled several together, he made sure to exercise the child, to cast a demon out of the child. Not to say that, the, you know, the, the head of the kid was spinning around there barfing everywhere, right? But, but the, <laughs> well, that's just what the movie did. Uh, but but to, to demonstrate publicly, the devil is has a claim on this child. Well, Until that, now. To some extent, that is still there later when it says, do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all his words? But it's different it, it's, than I yeah, cast you out. Right. I mean, yeah. it's pretty poetic I, I agree with you. I'm going to pause and back up a little bit for, for our poor dear listener. Uh, in Pastor Martin Luther's rite uh, of baptism, he actually had a point where he, he drove... He spoke to any demon that might be within the baptismal candidate and drove it out. Mm. Uh, it, the removal of a demon is called an exorcism. Not that you think that the baby's doing jumping jacks, uh, although that would be kind of adorable too. Um, this isn't adorable at all. This driving out of, of evil and the the expulsion of the devil uh, that comes here, uh, and so that's the exorcism we're talking about. I want to get to the beautiful line with about one minute left here because this is of great comfort. This is why this confession of baptism is so important. The next line then says. But the Father of all mercy and grace has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, who atoned for the sin of the whole world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the very thing that is being done here in baptism. And this this is the beauty of what baptism delivers to us, is that though I would be lost and condemned to hell for all eternity because I'm conceived with this terrible disease of sin that is disfiguring and ugly— baptism is where Jesus intercedes and he says, no, you're mine. And by the love of God, our heavenly father, he claims us. He puts his name on us. That is why we are Christians. Christ becomes our name. And that is how God sees us. And he rescues us from that. And that is 
not up to me to rationalize or be able to understand, but very much to receive out of love from our Heavenly Father. Well, that's what is of a great comfort to us. That's what we've been talking about in baptism today. Thanks for stopping by as our company of Christ Confessing Concordians, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith, have talked about it today. We hope that you will continue to make this faithful confession of what God does for us out of love, our perfect Heavenly Father, and the works of baptism. Until next time, keep confessing, church. A wet blankety, blankety, blank, blank kind of thing? What? What? <laughs>